During the last 150 years, the Bible has been translated into all of the major languages of the world. According to the report given at the 1957 annual meeting of the American Bible Society, the complete Bible, Old and New Testament, is now available in 210 languages and dialects. The complete New Testament is available in 270 more. And at least one book of the Bible, usually one of the Gospels, has been translated into 629 more, for a total of 1,109 languages and dialects into which the Bible has been translated in whole or in part. A quote from the United Press Report, January 12, 1957. Today the Bible is available in whole or in part in the native tongue of 98% of the people of the world. Surely that must be acknowledged as great progress and as a very broad and substantial basis on which to rear the future structure of Christianity. None of the so-called bestseller books attain more than a small fraction of the number of Bibles sold. Furthermore, the Christian message is being broadcast by radio in all of the principal languages of the world. Several evangelical radio programs with nationwide or worldwide coverage have been launched within recent years. For instance, the Lutheran Hour, Missouri Synod, estimated 22 million listeners each week in the worldwide broadcast in more than 50 languages. The Back to God Hour, from the Christian Reformed Church, the Hour of Decision, Independent, the Old Fashioned Revival Hour, Independent, to name only a few. There are literally hundreds of other Christian radio programs reaching more limited areas, some of which are heard daily. The gospel is thus brought into many a home and into many a sick room where it would not otherwise be heard, and to many a distant farm or lonely mining or lumber camp, to people on the highways and to ships at sea. How marvelous that is compared with the very limited proclamation that prevailed for so many centuries. The overall result is that for the first time in history, the people of the entire world have the evangelical Christian message made available to them. The number of theological seminaries, Bible institutes, and Christian colleges in which the Bible is studied systematically is growing faster than the population, and the enrollment is increasing steadily. Numerous Christian magazines with a very wide circulation have been established within recent years. A considerable proportion of the new books that come from the press either deal directly with Christianity or with some phase of religion. During the past two centuries, the Christian church has made great progress and has established thousands upon thousands of local churches. It has become customary in the United States to think of the colonial period as an age of deep faith. Yet the fact is that a large number of the people who came to these shores during that time did so to escape religious oppression in European countries, and they were slow in establishing new churches. Many had no church connection to begin with or dropped the connection they did have, as has so often been the case in frontier or pioneer settlements. The pilgrims and Puritans were the exception to the rule, but while they were strong in some sections, other sections were quite different. Professor Leonard Verdon of the Department of History in the University of Michigan has this to say regarding church membership in the colonial period. The first century and a half of American history was a mere elongation of European establishmentism. Throughout the colonies, by and large, there was a favored church. 
And contrary to a legend which one often hears that those were golden days, America was never so near to being post-Christian as it was at the end of those 150 years. Competent historians find not more than 6% of the adult population church-related. Then came the revolution, and out of it was born the federal constitution. As by a divine economy it was laid down once and for all in the First Amendment that establishment was to be out of this new commonwealth. And even as a patient sometimes rallies in an amazing fashion at the injection of sulfur, so did this new commonwealth from that moment on witness the return of religion. Steadily without fluctuation, the figure of the percentage of church membership rises until today we stand at an all-time high, not far below 60% of the population today holding church membership. A quote from the Reform Journal, January 1953. We may add that in 1870, church membership in the United States stood at 18%, a percentage increased three times that of the Revolutionary War period. Today it stands at an all-time high of 61%, an increase of 4% within the last five years. Of these, 35% are members of Protestant churches, 20% are Roman Catholics. A quote from the Yearbook of American Churches, 1956. So-called modernism or liberalism has indeed risen in some quarters to deny a greater or lesser portion of the faith. But modernism has nothing positive to offer. Its leading advocates set forth conflicting systems and, in effect, acknowledge that the system is bankrupt. We are confident that after the present season of criticism and testing of the foundations is over, we shall have a grander and stronger edifice of theology than the ages have yet seen. Statistics indicate that the world over, Christianity has grown more in the last 100 years than in the preceding 1800, and that it now has a considerably larger number of nominal adherents than the combined total of any other two world religions. These figures show that of a total world population of about two and one-half billion, there are approximately 800 million Christians, 350 million Confucianists, including Taoists, 320 million Muslims, 310 million Hindus, 150 million Buddhists, 20 million Shintoists, and 12 million Jews. And while many of those who are counted as Christians are only nominally such, the proportion of true Christians probably is as great or greater than is the proportion of true adherents in any of the pagan religions. All of the other religions, with the exception of Mohammedism, are much older than Christianity. All of the false religions are dying. Christianity alone is able to grow and flourish under modern civilization while all of the others soon disintegrate when brought under its glaring light. We feel perfectly confident in asserting that all of the anti-Christian religions and anti-Christian philosophies of our day are demonstrably false. Their histories show what complete failures they have been so far as raising the moral, spiritual, and intellectual standards of their adherents is concerned. They await only the coup de grace of an aroused and energetic Christianity to send them into oblivion. In this connection, Dr. Albertus Peters has well said, In the early church, Ebionitism, Gnosticism, Monotism, Arianism, and Pelagianism 
endangered the life of the church. They are remembered now only by church historians. Later it was Romanism and Sassianism. In modern life it is Unitarianism, Modernism, Mormonism, Russellism, Christian Science, Spiritualism, etc. A long list of movements of satanic origin that comes on like a flood and for a time make timid believers afraid that the church will be overwhelmed and the gospel permanently lost to the world. But it never comes to pass. The present heresies will disappear as did those of the past. A quote in the Studies in the Revelation of St. John, page 165. Only within the last 100 years have foreign missions really come into their own. As they have recently been developed with great church organizations behind them and with extensive facilities for translating and publishing Christian literature in many languages, they are in a position to carry on a work of evangelism in foreign lands such as the world has never seen before. It is safe to say that the present generation living in India, China, Japan, Korea, Indochina, and the Near East have seen greater changes in religion, society, and government than occurred in the preceding 2,000 years. Not only has the foundation been laid in most of these countries for a further evangelical advance, but under the benign influence of the church, innumerable local churches, schools, and hospitals have been founded. Ethical culture and social services have advanced greatly, and moral standards are much higher today than when the church was first established. That we may get a truer view of the progress that has been made, we cite the following picture of the early world into which Christianity came, as given by Dr. William Hendrickson. Let us transplant ourselves to the world of John the Apostle and imagine that the slow finger of history's clock is pointing to the first century A.D. Now look around you in every direction. What a picture of spiritual darkness and desolation. Try to count the many idols that disgrace the streets and sanctuaries of imperial Rome, the abominations, the filth and corruption attending upon the celebration of pagan festivals, the superstitions, vices, etc., are very staggering. Temples and shrines throughout the world are crowded with ignorant, half-despairing worshippers. We see a few scattered churches established by the efforts of Paul and others. For the rest, heathendom is everywhere triumphant. All the nations, with the exception of the Jews, are under the thraldom of Satan. A quote from More Than Conquerors, page 224. When we contrast the rapid spread of Christianity in recent years with the rapid disintegration that is taking place in all of the other world religions, it becomes very clear that Christianity is the future world religion. There are, however, some who tell us in all seriousness that the world is getting worse. Surely they are prompted to do so only in defense of a theory that clearly is contradicted by the facts. In response to such reasoning, Dr. Snowden says, the true way of judging the world is to compare its present with its past condition and note in which direction it is moving. Is it going backward or forward? Is it getting worse or better? It may be wrapped in gloomy twilight, but is it the twilight of the evening or of the morning? Are the shadows deepening into starless night or are they fleeing before the rising sun? One glance at the world as it is today compared with what it was ten or twenty centuries ago 
shows us that it has swept through a wide arc and is moving toward the morning. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, page 250. But while great progress has been made as the Church has extended her witness to the far corners of the earth, much the greater part of the work yet remains to be accomplished. Adherents of the pagan religions still outnumber those of the Christian faith, and even within the Church there is a crying need for a fuller knowledge of the contents of the Christian faith and for a much more consistent living in accordance with those principles on the part of professing Christian people. The binding of Satan, described in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, we now perceive to be not a sudden event, but a very long, slow process. It has been in process of accomplishment for more than 19 centuries, and much progress has been made. But no time limit can be set as to how much longer the process may have to be continued before it is crowned with success, nor how long the era of righteousness will prevail over the earth before the Lord returns. The 19th centuries that have elapsed since the Christian era began may well indicate that several more centuries, perhaps even millenniums, may be required, particularly if devastating wars yet remain to be fought, as is, of course, perfectly possible. Skeptics sometimes point to present-day evils and tell us that we are living in a post-Christian age. But no, there has never yet been a truly Christian age, nor has so much as one nation ever been consistently Christian. The age in which we are now living is still pre-Christian. That the progress of the church through these years has been slow is due to the fact that Christians in general have not taken seriously Christ's command to evangelize the world. The Great Commission is addressed not merely to ministers and missionaries, but to all Christians everywhere. No distinction is made in this command between ministers and laymen. The command applies to parents rearing their children, to children in regard to their parents, to individuals in whatever relationship they stand to their neighbors or business or social companions, to those who teach in the schools, to employers and employees in their mutual relationships, to writers, newsmen, statesmen, to Christians in general, regardless of occupation or station in life. The gospel is the good news of the salvation that God has provided for sinful man, and it should be given out by all who have it, given out by word of mouth, through the example of a Christian life, and by the effective and generous use of money or property or time as opportunity affords. Oftentimes a word sincerely spoken by a friend or neighbor to one who is outside the church is more persuasive than what is said by the minister. It has been said, No one can perform a higher service than this, to make more accessible the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Let Christians everywhere take seriously the command to evangelize the world, and the work will be accomplished in a comparatively short time. Roderick Campbell has well said, some day the Christian church will learn to profit by the bitter experience of the church and nation of the Old Covenant. Two very pointed and useful lessons may be learned from the records of the past. Israel had been commanded by God to march in and take possession of the promised land. About one year after they left Egypt, they reached the borders of the land. Then their faith and their courage failed. Let us make a captain, they say, and let us return into Egypt. What is the result? 
forty weary years of wandering among the rocks and the sand of the desert, and the death of that entire adult generation, with the exception of two men of faith. See Numbers chapter 14 and chapters 32 verses 10 through 13. The other lesson is equally profitable and clear. A new army under Joshua entered the land. It won its first signal victory at Jericho. It then met bitter and humiliating defeat. Why? Israel had sinned. The guilty party must be punished and every forbidden thing destroyed before victory could be achieved. When this was done, Israel found itself on the side of the Almighty. See Joshua chapter 7. God fought for Israel with a mighty hand. The fulfillment of prophecy awaits the day when the church will really believe that God will do all that he has promised to do and when the church will sincerely aim at entire conformity to the revealed will of God. Then, by the agency of imperfect but faithful men, we may expect God to do what he has promised to do. A quote from Israel and the New Covenant, page 162. Premillennialists sometimes try to refute this general view by citing the question asked in Luke, chapter 18, verse 8, When the Son of Man cometh, Shall he find faith on the earth? And they infer that the answer must be no. But in order to give a negative answer to this question, it is necessary to ignore the many statements in Scripture which describe the latter-day glory of the church. Surely an answer which at first might seem to be implied, but which is not given in Scripture, should not be allowed to overweigh the many references which speak of the triumph of righteousness in the earth. We submit that a question such as that in Luke 18, verse 8, does not necessarily require a negative answer. When in the farewell discourse to the disciples, Jesus asked, Do ye now believe? John 16, verse 31, No answer is given, but we do not believe that the implied answer is no. When Paul asked King Agrippa, Believest thou the prophets? Acts 26, 27, the implied answer might seem to be no, for there was little to indicate that Agrippa did believe. But Paul quickly adds, I know that thou believest. In closing this chapter, we should point out that some postmillennial writers, as well as others, have fallen into the error of assuming too rapid progress. Dr. Snowden, for instance, after showing so clearly the error of the premillennialists in date setting and in assuming the near return of Christ, went on to make the same kind of an error in assuming that the millennium was just about to dawn. In his book, The Coming of the Lord, written while the First World War was in progress, he assumed that the successful conclusion of the war, which he saw as in the near future, would put an end to militarism forever and that it would be followed by a rapid development toward the millennial era. That the lessons learned from the First World War should have had that effect, we readily agree. But whether the time will be long or short, we have no way of knowing. This we can say. Postmillennialism does not despair of the power of the gospel to convert the world, but holds rather that it cannot be defeated, that over the centuries it will win its way, and that eventually the goal will be achieved. In the light of these facts, we face the future confident that the best is yet to be. Let Christians everywhere thank God for the progress that has been made and take courage. Their future is as bright as the promises of God. Chapter 8, page 48.
material prosperity during the millennium. The great material prosperity of which the Bible speaks as accompanying the millennial era will be to a large extent the natural result of the high moral and spiritual life of that time. These blessings too are from God. In numerous prophecies, temporal blessings are expressly represented as following in the train of the new covenant blessings. Surely it need not be doubted that when the other characteristics of the millennial era are realized, this material prosperity also shall find its place. Godliness and sober living in a real sense bring their own reward. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, said Jesus in Matthew 6. 33. Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is, as well as of that which is to come. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Isaiah 35, verse 1. And how appropriate is the prophetic messianic 72nd Psalm. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge the people with righteousness, and thy poor with justice. He shall redeem their soul from oppression and violence, and precious will their blood be in his sight. And they shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. And men shall pray for him continually. They shall bless him all the day long. There shall be abundance of grain in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him happy, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Verses 1, 2, and 14 through 19. In this connection, David Brown quotes a writer of his day as follows. We need not have recourse to the miraculous fruitfulness of the earth which Papias feigned in order to fulfill this prophecy. Psalm 72. Plenty is the natural consequence of the moral change which takes place in the world at the millennium. The universal righteousness of that happy period will prevent despotism in government, anarchy in the people, as well as the devastations of war by which the earth is left uncultivated or its produce destroyed. The religion of that period will civilize savages and destroy among civilized nations the numerous occupations that minister to the lawless passions of men, thus directing a great multitude of the human race to the useful acts of agriculture who had been formerly idle and a burden upon the labor of others. The love universally felt and practiced in that period will lead those who have abundance to distribute cheerfully and freely to the necessities of those who may be in need. A quote from the Second Advent, page 400. By way of background, we should remember that when man was created and placed in the Garden of Eden, he was commanded not only to dress and keep the garden, but that he was given the broader command to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 and chapter 2 verse 15. That meant that he was to search out the laws of nature and learn how to use them, 
develop new substances, and in general make himself master of the whole creation. Certainly he is a long way behind schedule on that assignment. In the Genesis account of the origin of sin, we read that as a part of the penalty placed on man for his sin, the ground was cursed. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Thenceforth it would bring forth thorns and thistles, so that he would have a never-ending struggle to maintain his existence. The plants and animals and the forces of nature in general, which formerly were for his use and service, then came into a different relationship to him and became, in a degree, antagonistic to him. His previously pleasant task of dressing and keeping the garden then became toil, irksome labor, and he must thenceforth earn his bread by the sweat of his face, chapter 3, verse 19. And in reality is not much of the wasteland condition of the earth the natural and inevitable result of man's indolence, ignorance, and generally perverted nature which has come about as the result of his fall into sin. The barren and unimproved stretches of land witness to his neglect. Proper irrigation and cultivation has made many a desert to blossom like the rose. One who has traveled through our arid southwest, particularly through New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California, has had opportunity to see what great changes take place when water, fertilizer, improved plant varieties, and cultivation are applied to the soil. The luxurious growth and beautiful landscapes that now are to be found in some limited areas are but a small sample of what can be done more efficiently and on a worldwide scale when man returns to the proper performance of the task that was assigned to him in Eden. A field that this year has a beautiful crop of wheat or corn may next year lie untilled with the result that weeds and thistles take possession. Man's proper management of the earth the task assigned to him before the fall will go far toward restoring a profitable plant and animal life. Remedy the sin condition in man and a marvelous transformation will take place in nature. Luther Burbank and others have done much to bring back toward their original condition many varieties of plants and fruits that in their wild and neglected state had degenerated until they were practically worthless. A revolution has occurred in transportation, communications, home furnishings, etc. within our own lifetime. Our modes of travel and transportation have changed more within the last 150 years than in the preceding 2000. George Washington using the horse-drawn stagecoach, which was the best means available in his day, traveled in much the same manner as did the ancient Persians and Egyptians. The automobile hard surface highways, electrical power for lighting, and other household uses, the airplane, radio, television, etc., are all comparatively new. And now the new sciences of atomic and solar energy, with the prospect for extremely cheap power and the whole new field of electronics, in which we have as yet hardly more than scratched the surface, give great promise for the future. A leading industrialist recently said, America is about to enter a new golden age of prosperity which will hinge upon the harnessing of the atom and the advent of the electronic age. One new discovery follows another and we see more and more clearly the tremendous potentials that are available for good 
potentials that through all these many centuries have remained largely unused. Knowledge has become very widespread. Schools, even for advanced study, have been made available for all classes of people. And books, magazines, newspapers, libraries, scientific laboratories, etc., make available for all of our people vast stores of knowledge that only two or three generations ago was confined almost exclusively to favored, limited groups. In the administration of justice, great progress has been made as Christian principles have gained wider acceptance. British and American justice today is world-renowned for its meticulous consideration for the rights of the accused and of prisoners. But this is a comparatively recent development. Even in England, generally regarded as the most enlightened of the European nations, as late as the 19th century, prisoners convicted of comparatively minor offenses were often given long prison terms or even death. A recent book, The Old Bailey and Its Trials, by Bernard O'Donnell, 1951, gives the history of one of the most famous law courts and tells a shocking story of professional witnesses and bribed juries being used to secure convictions and of executions before drunken hysterical throngs. Conditions among the prisoners were revolting. Sanitation was almost unknown. Disease ran rampant among prison inmates. Tortures such as flogging and pressings were used to extract confessions. Prisoners convicted of slandering royalty might have their hands cut off. The vicious practice of fees charged inmates by jail keepers whereby prisoners had to pay to be supplied with water, a bed and other necessities, was not stopped until the 19th century. There were half-hearted attempts at reform from time to time, but it took parliamentary action during the Victorian period to establish the justice and fairness which prevails today. Similarly, the progress that already has been made in the fields of health and sanitation have raised the human lifespan in the United States from 32 years in 1750 until now it is just short of 70 years. Modern surgery and medicine have developed largely within the past 100 years. Medical practice has been changed from a mystic and superstitious procedure to an advanced science. The so-called miracle drugs, including the sulfas, cortisone, and antibiotics, date back only about 20 years, the sulfas having been discovered in 1935. It is not unreasonable to assume that with the continued advance of science, and particularly with the better modes of living that come with moral and spiritual advance, man's lifespan shall be extended considerably more. Isaiah seems to indicate great longevity for the righteous. The sinner dying at the age of 100 years will be accursed, and so unnatural will his death be that it will be looked upon as the death of a child. There shall no more thence be an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Chapter 65, verse 20. Only recently, Dr. Robert A. Davidson, Department of General Practice at the University of Tennessee Medical College, declared to a group of doctors that doctors of the future will spend most of their time maintaining health rather than restoring it. To live to be 115 or 120 will be expected. To live to be 140 will be desired. 
He added that science estimates the metabolic potential of the human body as it now is at 140 years. A quote from the Kansas City Times, October 21, 1955. But no matter how marvelous this material prosperity may become, it will ever remain but the byproduct of the moral and spiritual prosperity that already to some extent characterizes the partially Christianized nations. It is abundantly clear that these blessings do not originate under pagan religions. Many nations that are the victims of those religions have lain in their poverty and ignorance and moral degradation for centuries or even for thousands of years while making practically no progress. The progress that has already occurred, originating largely in the Protestant nations of Western Europe and in the United States, has been achieved in connection with only a limited amount of progress toward the millennium. What marvels must lie ahead when nations the world over are Christian, when the millennium becomes a reality? Thus postmillennialism holds that Christianity is to become the controlling and transforming influence not only in the moral and spiritual life of some individuals, but also in the entire social, economic, and cultural life of the nations. There is no reason why this change should not take place over the entire earth with pagan religions and false philosophies giving place to the true and the earth being restored in a considerable measure to that high purpose of righteousness and holiness for which it was created. Chapter 9, page 54 The Millennium Not a Perfect or Sinless State There seems to be a general impression that when we speak of a millennium, we mean a time when the world will be sinless or practically so. We do believe that a time is coming when the people of the world in general will be Christians, a time when Satan will no longer be able to deceive the nations. Revelation 20 verse 3 But we do not believe that the kingdom in this world, even in its millennial fullness and power, will be a perfect or sinless state nor do we believe that every person will be a Christian. Yet it is not uncommon to find pre- and amillennial writers inferring or declaring that such are the tenets of postmillennialism and using such terms as ideal perfection, a perfect world, convert every individual and sinless perfection to describe the postmillennial position. No representative postmillennialist teaches those things. Certainly such was not the teachings of Hodge, Dabney, Shedd, Strong, Snowden, or Warfield, nor is it the teaching of Scripture. Sinless perfection belongs only to the heavenly life. As long as the person remains in this world, even though he is a truly born-again Christian, remnants of the old nature still cling to him and he falls victim to some extent to such things as selfish desires, envy, jealousy, impatience, etc. All of us still have occasion to say with Paul, the good which I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I practice. Romans 7.19 Sanctification is a process which is not complete until death. As long as the present world continues, all those born into it are born members of a fallen, sinful race. They can be brought to a state of saving knowledge of God and be turned to a righteous life only through the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Some experience regeneration in early childhood, others in middle life or old age, and some never experience it at all. 
there will always remain problems to vex the saints. In a Christian environment, temptations do become much more limited in scope and intensity, but they are never completely eliminated. The wheat and the tares continue to grow together until the harvest, which is the end of the world. What a tremendous difference there would be in this world if the rank and file of the people were Christians, and if Christian standards were the generally accepted rule in our social, economic, educational, and political life. Progress would be incredibly more rapid and permanent. Poverty and disease would be largely eliminated. Economic and political rivalry would be reduced to a minimum, and the accomplishments of a prolonged era of peace would be preserved instead of being destroyed by periodic wars, as so often has been the case up to the present time. The millennium is, in fact, simply the full development of the kingdom of grace as it comes to fruition in this world. This kingdom begins very small, but it grows, and eventually it dominates the whole earth. In some Old Testament prophecies, God's future kingdom is described under the symbolism of a mountain. In these we have set before us the triumph of the now existing church as it becomes prominent and influential in all phases of human life. No new weapons are needed for the conquest of the world, nor is there any change of dispensations. Says David Brown, The church is already all that she needs to be. She is complete in her living and ever-present head, having all power in heaven and in earth at her command and getting it too at the destined period when the time to favor her is come, even the set time. A quote from the Second Advent, page 342. Snowden expresses his idea of what the millennium is in the following words. The world is yet young. Humanity is in its infancy. The centuries stretch out before it in vast vistas. There is before it a prospect of hope and splendid opportunism. The future is rosy with morning light. Truth shall be taken from the scaffold and wrong driven from the throne. More and more shall he whose right it is reign and the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. This will be the millennium. The visions of the Hebrew prophets of the messianic kingdom shall be fulfilled in their true spiritual and glorious meaning. As we gird ourselves for the work of life, we may look forward to the time when in the truest sense the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, kings of kings and lord of lords. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, page 275. What then will the millennium be like? In Acts 9.31 we read that after the bloody persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, had been transformed into a warm-hearted Christian, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, being edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplied. Such rest and its blessed consequences will be one of the chief features of the millennium. Up until the present time we have seen such rest only within limited circles and over short periods of time. But during the millennium such a state will exist throughout the church and over the whole world. What then is the difference between the present and the millennial state? asked David Brown. Just the difference, he answers, between plucking more brands out of the fire than now, between a less and a greater number of converted and holy persons. That is all.
page 393. There will be no difference in principle between the teaching and preaching of the gospel then and now. The difference will be in the extent to which it will become effective in the lives of the people. As Christianity is triumphant now in some family groups and local communities, so it will be then over the entire world. The millennium, therefore, does not mean an entirely new and different state of things on this earth, but rather the elimination of the great majority of the evil influences that still are so prominent throughout the world and a correspondingly higher moral and spiritual tone in the lives of the people. Thus figuratively, the wolf and the lamb shall lie down together. Things formerly antagonistic and hateful to each other will work together in one harmonious purpose. The desert will blossom as the rose, literally, as economic and scientific conditions lead to the development of natural resources and generally prosperous conditions over the world and figuratively as moral and spiritual conditions are improved. Poverty and ignorance will be largely eliminated. Health and education will be the general rule, and wealth will be vastly more abundant and more widely distributed. In general, then, the millennium will not involve any change in the nature of Christianity, but only its much wider extension. There will be no elements in it that are not now present on a smaller scale. Then it will be said, The kingdom of the world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In the words of David Brown, When the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven is given to the people of the saints of the Most High, when Christ's dominion is from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, when men are blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed, when they have beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, nation not lifting up sword against nation and none learning war any more, then of course all the earth will be at rest and be still, save in the unwearied activities of well-doing. But even then, as the flesh will lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so salvation in every case will then be as much a triumph of grace over nature as now. Page 293. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, 
which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.